Hello, listeners. This is Mike, your host. If you are enjoying these archive episodes, please consider supporting the podcast by going to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and clicking on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Hopefully, with your support, I can continue to release these archive episodes. Thanks. Less than ten months ago, tragedy here at Cape Kennedy rocked this nation's space program, set back our moon landing schedule by as much as a year, and set loose doubts about sending men into space at all. Today, the nation rejoices, hopes rise again that John Kennedy's goal of putting an American on the moon by 1970 will be realized. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 148 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 4. Unmanned missions in every program are forgotten, except in NASA record books. Something that annoys controllers, who know how difficult it is to control a Virgin spacecraft and booster and operate with software all fresh off the production line. The controllers had to do the crew's job without the benefit of their presence, using ground commands in place of the crew switches, we provided all the maneuvers and testing called for in the flight plan. Every controller loved the unmanned missions. We were the first to fly new spacecraft. No man would fly until these missions were successful. That was a quote from flight director Gene Krantz. Apollo 4 was the first unmanned test flight of the Saturn V. It was the first to be launched from Launch Complex 39 at the John F. Kennedy Space Center on Merritt Island, Florida, on facilities built specifically for Saturn V. It was the first Apollo flight after the stand-down imposed after the Apollo 1 fire, which killed the first Apollo crew. It was the first to use NASA's official Apollo numbering scheme established in April 1967, it was designated Apollo 4 because there had been three previous unmanned Apollo Saturn flights in 1967 using the Saturn 1B launch vehicle. As early as May 9, 1967, Houston proposed four manned missions, one with only the command and service modules, the other three with all the vehicles. Before any attempt at a lunar landing, headquarters in Washington believed that the lunar landing mission might be possible on the fourth man flight, which Houston thought was unrealistic. Chris Kraft warned George Lowe that a lunar landing should not be attempted on the first flight which leaves the Earth's gravitational field. There was much to be gained from the operations which could be conducted on the way to and in the vicinity of the moon. The many questions of thermal control away from the Earth's environment, navigation and control during translunar flight, communications and tracking at lunar distances, 
lighting conditions, and other flight experiences affecting astronaut activities in the vicinity of the moon, lunar orbit and rendezvous techniques, just to name a few. It would be highly desirable to have had these experiences when NASA was ready to commit to a lunar landing operation, thereby allowing a more reasonable concentration on the new problems not yet discovered associated with the descent to the lunar surface. Deputy Administrator Siemens and his aides made a swing around the manned spaceflight circuit in June, visiting Kennedy, Huntsville, Mississippi Test, Machode, and Houston. In the course of the tour, Siemens observed a definite upsurge of confidence within the Apollo team, although there were still some worries, for example, at Kennedy with planning predicated on a six-week checkout of the Apollo Saturn in the Cape facilities and launch during the seventh week, there was still some feeling that the schedule for the launch of Apollo 4 was extremely tight. Huntsville was still worried about the S-2 stage of the launch vehicle, which had gone through a rather tough year of testing in 1966, and Houston, as a result of fire-related changes, was fighting the age-old problem of a weight-gaining spacecraft. On top of this, the lunar module was still having ascent engine instability problems, also left over from the previous year. The next month, in July 1967, Miller and an entourage visited the North American plant at Downey to see what the contractor had done about the Thompson Board's recommendations. As they walked around the manufacturing area, Miller seemed generally pleased with progress. Within a very few months, that progress was to be demonstrated in a very satisfactory manner. Now let's turn our attention toward the vehicle assembly. Apollo Saturn V, designed to propel the United States manned lunar landing mission. Three million parts from the labor of people at 20,000 companies, universities, and government facilities. A first stage assembled in Louisiana using parts from Kansas, Missouri, Washington, and many other states. A second stage shipped to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida through the Panama Canal from California with a stopover in Mississippi for testing. A third stage flown from California to Florida, an instrument unit from Alabama. The spacecraft came from factories in Oklahoma, New York, and California and electronic systems came from such widely separated sources as Massachusetts and Wisconsin. Major equipment to prepare, test, launch, guide, track, and recover the spacecraft are the products of Minnesota, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Arizona, Ohio, Tennessee, and other states. The launch of Apollo 4 was originally planned for late 1966, but was pushed back by stage development problems to April 1967. The first piece to arrive at the Kennedy Space Center was the S-4B stage, built by the Douglas Aircraft Company. It was small enough to be transported by a specially built plane called the Pregnant Guppy, built by Aerospace Lines, Inc. It arrived on August 14, 1966. The other stages were much larger and had to travel by barge along the Banana River. The S-1C first stage, built by Boeing Company, arrived next on September 12th from Machode, Louisiana. 
sure you recall from last week's episode, North American Aviation was a contractor for both the S-2 Saturn V second stage and the Apollo Command Service Module spacecraft. NASA had been experiencing problems with North American's schedule, cost, and quality performance on both programs, severe enough that Apollo Director Samuel C. Phillips sent a team to North American in California in November and December of 1965 to investigate the matters and recommended solutions to the program management problems. He published his findings in a report to his supervisor, George Miller. The S-2 development was known to be about a year behind schedule, and the first flight ready stage did not make its delivery in 1966. In the meantime, vehicle assembly continued using a huge spool-shaped spacer in its place in order to gain more experience in the third stage stack procedure. The S-2 did not arrive until January 21, 1967, six days before the fatal Apollo 1 spacecraft fire. Upon inspection, cracks were found in the liquid hydrogen tank. These were repaired. The third stage and the spacer was removed and assembly continued with the S-2 on February 23rd. Command and Service Module Number 17 arrived from North American about a month before the Apollo fire on December 24, 1966. It had already passed a quality control inspection, but after the fire that destroyed its sister command module, Number 12, it was subject to an intensive inspection that found a total of 1,407 errors in the spacecraft. Dozens of haphazardly routed and skinned wires were short circuits just waiting to happen. NASA managers came to see the problems for themselves. Director of Launch Operations Rocco Patrone was said to have cursed. Apollo Spacecraft Program Officer Manager Joseph Shea welled up in tears, and Phillips stood in stunned silence. The command service module was removed from the stack on February 14, 1967 for repair, which required another four months until it was ready to be remated to the rocket on June 20th. On August 26, the complete launch vehicle finally rolled out of the vertical assembly building, more than eight months after the originally scheduled launch date. Here's an audio clip to put things in perspective. The Apollo Saturn V assembly, tall as a 36-story building, weighing over 6 million pounds, outstrips the wildest fantasies of man. 19 times more powerful than Atlas, it takes off with a thrust equivalent to 160 million horsepower from five engines clustered at its base like the number five on dice. The roar of its liftoff makes the noise of 25,000 stereo sets playing full blast. It vibrates the innards of anybody standing within three and a half miles of the launch site. In terms of weightlifting, it's as though we had picked a Navy destroyer out of the water and thrown it to the moon. Everything about this newest bird involves superlatives. It stretches the vocabulary of all who attempt to describe it. It's so huge, so complicated, that the Kennedy Space Center had to create a whole new way of handling and carrying it. All sections are stacked on top of each other in a barn 52 stories high, costing $108,700,000. This is the world's largest building, 
with an interior space so vast that it creates its own weather. If it were not for 10,000 tons of air conditioning, clouds would form inside and it would rain. On August 26th, the whole assembly rolled out through garage doors that are 45 stories high on a vast tractor called the crawler, which is as big as a baseball diamond, and whose tread assembly, with each shoe weighing a ton, stands almost twice the height of a man. All this moved almost imperceptibly at a third of a mile an hour to pad A at the moon point, over a special three and a half mile long road. Altogether, in its every dimension, Saturn V reduces man to a dwarf, except in the one most important dimension. It is man who has conceived, designed, and built all this ingenious immensity. At the time, Apollo 4 was the largest launch vehicle to ever attempt a flight. This mission was NASA's first to use all-up testing, a decision that goes back to late 1963. George Miller, the head of NASA's Office of Manned Spaceflight at that time, was a systems engineer who previously worked on military missile projects. Miller recognized all-up testing was successfully used to rapidly develop the Air Force's Minuteman ICBM program and thought it could be used to meet Apollo's schedule. Previously, the way Werner von Braun's team at Marshall Space Flight Center and the old NACA Langley Research Center engineers tested new rockets was by testing each stage incrementally. The Saturn V's test program departed from the conservative, incremental approach previously used by Marshall and Langley engineers. It would be tested all at once, with all stages live and fully flight-worthy, including an Apollo Command Service module. This decision dramatically streamlined the program's test flight phase, eliminating four missions. But it required everything to work properly the first time. Apollo program managers had misgivings about all-up testings, but agreed to do it with some reluctance since incremental component tests would inevitably push the lunar landing past the 1970 goal. Since this was an all-up test, it was the first S1C first stage and S2 second stage first launch. It would also be the first time that the S-4B third stage would be restarted in Earth orbit, and the first time that the Apollo spacecraft would re-enter Earth's atmosphere at the speed of a lunar return trajectory. Here's Walter Cronkite with the flight objectives. Here at the Kennedy Space Center, the count now is 5 minutes and 29 seconds to the launch of Saturn V, the biggest rocket man has ever built. A critical test of this rocket complex, which is to take an American to the moon. We have two major objectives this morning to test all three stages of Saturn V. They've never flown together before. The first stage has never flown before. The second stage has never flown before. The third stage has flown before, but has never been reignited in flight, as it will have to be on this mission if it is successful. The Apollo spacecraft, as uh, prepared for this flight, has not been flown before. It is a complete spacecraft, 
except there are no men in it, three little black boxes doing their work as nearly as they can. And it was a test the heat shield for a lunar re-entry speed of 25,000 miles an hour when it plunges back to Earth uh, some eight and three quarters hours from now. Meanwhile, the Apollo 4 command service module was a Block 1 design meant for systems testing not the Block 2 spacecraft designed for use with the lunar module on the actual moon landings. However, several significant Block 2 modifications were made for certification, since no all-up Block 2 spacecraft would fly without a crew. The modifications included a new Command Module Heat Shield Outer Covering, a new Command Module to Service Module Umbilical Connector, moving the VHF scimitar antennas from the command module to the service module, a new unified S-band antenna, and a modified crew compartment latch. A dummy lunar module, known as a lunar module test article, was carried as ballast to simulate the loadings of the lunar module on the launch. At 29,500 pounds or 13,400 kilograms, the lunar test article was slightly lighter than a nominal lunar module used on the first lunar landing, which weighed 33,278 pounds or 15,095 kilograms. Here's Walter Cronkite with the flight plan for Apollo 4. Meanwhile, the Apollo spacecraft will go twice around the Earth and then be fired out into a translunar trajectory, going some 11,000 miles out into space before turning around and then plunging back to Earth at that fierce speed of 25,000 miles an hour, creating a heat of 4,500 degrees on the heat shield. We've never had to, that sort of a test in space before. Our orbital flights have come back at 17,500 miles an hour with just about half the heat that would be created by this lunar re-entry. That landing will be some 620 miles northwest of Hawaii, eight and three quarters hours after the launch of this, which has been called frequently Operation Big Shot. The vehicle's on-pad and pre-launch test and preparations practice started in September and encountered several problems with propellant loading and various equipment failures. These pushed the launch into November, but provided valuable lessons learned on the new vehicle. By this time, North American had been purchased by Rockwell Standard Corporation, so launch support was first provided under the new name North American Rockwell. On November 6, the 56 and one-half hour countdown sequence began with propellant loading. In total, there were 89 trailer truck loads of liquid oxygen, 28 trailer loads of liquid hydrogen, and 27 rail cars of RP-1 refined kerosene. This time, the problems encountered were few and minor. Much like the Saturn I's maiden flight six years earlier, the fear of a low-altitude launch failure and especially a pad explosion was high. Several NASA studies had been conducted to assess this scenario by studying previous such accidents, notably the March 1965 Atlas Centaur disaster. But in all such cases, they involved launch vehicles less than half the size and fuel load of the Saturn V. 
Such an event would be a catastrophe beyond all proportions. Fortunately, that didn't happen. Now let's move on to the launch. Birds, reptiles, and animals of higher and lower order that gathered at the Florida Wildlife Game Refuge, also known as Kennedy Space Center, would soon feel a tremendous jolt when the five engines in the first stage of Saturn V ignited there would be a man-made earthquake and shockwave. As someone later remarked, the question was not whether the Saturn V had risen, but whether Florida had sunk. The spacecraft stack at Launch Complex 39 was poised for the first Saturn V mission and first use of Launch Complex 39. Now, here is Walter Cronkite and Jack King with launch coverage of Apollo 4. We'll be uh, tuning in every once in a while now as we get into the last uh, four minutes of this countdown to Jack King, the voice of Apollo Control, who we will hear also on the launch. Reminding you again that uh, ignition takes place some nine seconds before the, uh, the uh, blast off from the pad itself. Here's an announcement from three minutes, 30 seconds and counting. The countdown still in process at this time. We've had an excellent countdown since the count was picked up some 49 hours ago. Coming up in about 10 seconds, we'll go on an automatic sequence. The automatic sequence comes in at 3 minutes and 10 seconds, and our countdown is completely automatic from then on down. The automatic sequencer is in. We are now completely automatic. Here in the Launch Control Center, we'll be monitoring some 300 readouts as the countdown continues to click down under the direction of the two ground computers, one here in the launch control center, the other one uh, right beneath the launch vehicle at the pad, but with the crew here directing the operation of these computers. We're now coming down on two minutes and 40 seconds and counting. We'll get the sequence start of engine ignition at 8.9 seconds in the countdown, and as the thrust builds up on the five engines of the first stage, we should reach 90% thrust and release at zero in the countdown. That's a beautiful picture you see from the top of the top of the umbilical tower every once in a while that we pick up. Uh, it's one of the 60 pictures fed into uh, the launch control center from uh, the pad uh, that these cameras to operate right through the uh, launch or as long as they can withstand the searing heat of the blastoff. This is Apollo Saturn launch control, T-minus two minutes and counting, T-minus two. We're now beginning to pressurize the tanks within the Saturn V vehicle. We'll pressurize all of the uh, tanks in all three stages with gaseous helium. As the pressurization builds up, it's being monitored here in the control center now at one minute and 40 seconds and counting. We're Our status board still indicating all is well. Status board shows instrument units, spacecraft, and all the launch support operations well at this time at 90 seconds and counting. Expecting a, a decibel count back here at the express site of some 120 decibels. Tremendous roar. 16 seconds and counting. The pressurization continuing within the vehicle at this time. We also have a hydraulic commit that will permit the hydraulics to drive the engines in the first stage. Liquid hydrogen tank in the second stage now pressurizing. T minus 60 seconds and counting. T minus 60. Our status board still shows we're go at this time. T-minus 50 seconds and counting. We have transferred to in power, internal power. The transfer is satisfactory. The 6.2 million pound 
Saturn V launch vehicle now on its own power at 38 seconds and counting. To repeat, the ignition sequence will start at 8.9 seconds. We'll be looking to lift off at zero. T-minus 30 seconds and Don't counting. forget. We'll count down from starting at T-minus 20. T-minus 25. Stage is reporting ready for launch. T-minus 20. 19. 18. 17. 16. 15. 14. 13. 12. 11. 10. 9. Ignition sequence start. Five, four, we have ignition. All engines are running. We have liftoff. We have liftoff at 7 a.m. The tower has... My God, I feel it shaking here. I feel it shaking. camera. Sequence now of the launch. Climbing very nicely. Our velocity is now 2,000, about 2,500 feet per second. We are two, three miles downrange, three miles downrange. The uh, rocket has just gone through max Q. And that is uh, one of the first critical stages after liftoff, which, of course, is the most critical the stage. flight controllers are reporting enthusiastically that all parameters look good. We're now the here. flight director says go all the way. How about that? 50 seconds. How about that? The Saturn has done it again. Right on time, precisely on time, except our clock. The launch occurred on November 9th at 7 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Eight seconds before liftoff, the five F-1 engines ignited, sending tremendous amounts of noise across the Kennedy Space Center. To protect from a possible explosion, the launch pads at Launch Complex 39 were located more than three miles from the vertical assembly building. Still, the sound pressure was much stronger than expected and buffeted the vehicle assembly building launch control center, and press buildings. Ceiling tiles fell around news reporter Walter Cronkite covering the launch for CBS. Cronkite and producer Jeff Grounick put their hands on the observation window in an effort to stop its powerful vibrations. Cronkite later admitted he was overwhelmed by the power of the rocket and the emotion of the moment. His on-air description was delivered without his usual poise and reserve as he yelled above the launch noise into his microphone. Our building is shaking here. Our building is shaking. Oh, it's terrific. The building's shaking. This big blast window is shaking. We're holding it with our hands. Look at that rocket going to the clouds at 3,000 feet. You can see it. You can see it. 
Oh, the roar is terrific! End quote. Apollo 4 was on its way. Downrange, two minutes, coming up on uh, staging. This is separation of the first stage. He's going all sources. The inboard engines have cut off. The inboard engines have shut down at approximately 2 minutes 18 seconds. The first engine uh, cuts off. No report yet on the outboard engines. There it is. There's There's staging. The engines, we can see it visually. Outboard cutoff was called at 2 minutes 34 seconds. Beautiful. You see the first stage dropping away. The S2 has ignited. Thrust is okay on the S2. The booster says we've got a good second stage. We are 64 miles downrange. Our velocity approximately 10,000 feet per second. The second plane has separated the interstage surrounding the second stage engines. And the tower has jettisoned. We saw that. You saw it on that long-range camera. The tower jettisoned right on time. We're three minutes, 20 seconds into the flight. At this point, uh, the flight is about 50 miles downrange, 100 miles high, and you're seeing it very clearly on that Igor camera, despite some cloud cover. You can see the rocket, uh, the escape rocket, still dropping behind up there. Flight Dynamics says, uh, in response to the flight director's question, we're real good. That's Flight Dynamics, and the uh, plots here certainly back him up. This uh, S2 burn, that is the second stage ignition, lasts Our some six minutes. Our distance now is 150 miles, 150 miles downrange, velocity approaching 11,000 feet per second. You see on the pad here a fire that uh, was started by the uh, the flight. Uh, by the launch. Uh, it doesn't look uh, too serious at the moment, and uh, some of this was expected. The uh, ground track is reported to be exactly nominal. One of the things that would have to be tested here, of course, was this launch facility. And uh, one of the things that they have to know is how much damage is done to the uh, launch facility, uh, how quickly it can be turned around and prepared for the launch. At this point, 200 miles downrange now, and our altitude is approaching 80 miles. Those five J-2 engines, a million pounds of thrust. uh, An aircraft off the east coast of Florida has acquired the spacecraft and booster combination. Coming up on five minutes. Flight director is just quizzed his booster controller on how the S-4B, the third stage of the vehicle, looks, and he's just as happy about its looks as he is the second stage. Here we see a picture. I'm interrupting Paul Haney to tell you about the picture you see from the top of the umbilical tower. That camera, that slave camera survived, that the heat uh, and the blast, uh, how we wouldn't know three miles away when we took such a beating. But you see the hoses on the launch pad, hosing it down. After that uh, heat, which is enough to take off three-quarters of an inch of concrete, uh, they tell us. It burns it away. Fantastic launch. And as we look now into launch control, those 450 uh, launch control operators uh, have now done most of their job. They've been watching on these uh, close television cameras that uh, are right in the launch site and monitoring all of the phases of the flight. 
and they have every reason to congratulate themselves. So far, the flight has gone exceedingly well. There's still much to be done. The second stage. We are rapidly approaching a point uh, where we will see, we will hear an event called propellant mixture ratio shift. And uh, this will cut down the flow of oxidizer and thus uh, enhance the flow of the hydrogen propellant. The, the next uh, critical moment we have here in the flight uh, comes uh, about uh, uh, two minutes from now when the third stage uh, must ignite. This third stage has been tested before. So far, the first and second stages, which have not been tested before, have worked perfectly. The third stage has run previously, and no trouble is expected with it. Its big test will come on a second ignition a little later on uh, in the flight. At the next critical moment, about two minutes from now, and as you hear Paul Haney reporting, everything is going exceedingly well. Boy, I'll tell you, though, that rocket goes off with quite a blast, and we may have to give some reconsideration to uh, just what we build here at the press site. We need a blockhouse, uh, not a uh, uh, cottage, as we have here now for our studio. The roof came in, uh, part of the paneling of the roof. The clock stopped. Uh, this big glass behind me here, which uh, uh, I have been worried about, I must say, for a couple of weeks and been assured by NASA engineers, although they're not responsible for it, and they made sure that they weren't responsible for it, which is the first time I had a little suspicion that Bobby Wester, our producer, might be putting something over on me. This piece of glass was shaking so that Jeff Grounick, my assistant, and I were holding on to it, hoping that somehow or other that would keep it from coming in on our heads. That blast was something absolutely unbelievable. Uh, I was at the first Yucca Flats test of the first uh, open shot of an atomic bomb in this country. Uh, that was back, uh, oh golly, what, uh, 14, 15 years ago. We have an animation now of the second stage ignition, which has just uh, come up. Well, I was back, we were five and a half miles from that blast, and it wasn't as great as this blast from three miles. At 8.40 uh, into Eight the flight. 20 seconds, there's a possibility that we may have lost one engine on the second stage. That's only a possibility, not a confirmed fact. 8 minutes, 30 seconds. You just heard uh, Paul Haney say there's a possibility of a loss of the, an engine. There are five engines on the second stage, and a loss of one engine Coming up on staging of the second would stage. probably not be critical. Second stage is dropping away at any Cut point. Up. Cut off on the second stage. There it is. The second Eight stage. minutes, 50 seconds in. We have J2 ignition on the third stage. And Booster says the thrust is okay on the third stage. He confirms thrust, a good thrust, nine minutes into the flight. The third stage has one J2 engine, similar to the five engines on the second stage. It develops some 200 to 225,000 pounds of thrust. We're 914 miles downrange. Our velocity now up to 23,000 feet per second. Uh, the performance right at the end of the second stage seemed to be a little erratic. We had some data dropouts. Uh, one flight controller thought perhaps we'd lost one of the five engines. We have no confirmation yet. I'm sure it'll turn up in the data. We did burn out approximately on time. And uh, the S-4B ignited right off on the, just as it should have. This uh, third stage uh, burns about uh, two minutes and 24 seconds, something like that. The first stage of this uh, vehicle has impacted uh, 
about 100 or more miles downrange. We have ships deployed in that area which will attempt to recover uh, as much as they can of that first stage, and we will try to get some camera packages which were mounted on the skirt of the second stage. 10 minutes and 18 seconds into the flight, and the flight director advises we have about one more minute of burn ahead of us. The Vanguard ship has acquired out in mid-Atlantic. We are 1,200 miles downrange right now, and we're coming up on 25,000 feet per second. No matter what happened at this point, we could burn our service module engine and get orbit capability. Ten minutes, 55 seconds into the flight. So now now we do know that we will get uh, an orbit. Uh, we've we reached just 17,000 miles an hour. Of the S-4B, a first report. Uh, the animation shows the... Eleven minutes, ten seconds. We have a confirmation of cutoff from the Vanguard ship in mid-Atlantic. The S-4B has shut down. The report confirmation came in here at 11 minutes, 10 seconds. And the Ullage engines on, this, on the S-4B have also uh, fired. And the word from the ship in the mid-Atlantic is, we are all go, we are all go. The flight went almost exactly as planned, and the huge booster rammed its payload into a parking orbit of 185 kilometers above the Earth. Two motion picture cameras were mounted on the thrust structure of the S-2 second stage for verification of proper staging sequence. Similar cameras were also mounted on the second Saturn V flight, Apollo 6. Cameras ran at four times normal speed to show the events in slow motion. The camera capsules were jettisoned soon after the first stage separation at an altitude of about 200,000 feet. Then they re-entered the atmosphere and parachuted to the ocean for recovery. Both S-2 cameras for Apollo 4 were recovered, so there is footage from both sides of the vehicle. Documentaries often use footage of a Saturn V launch, and one of the most used pieces shows the interstage between the first and second stages falling away. This footage is usually mistakenly attributed to Apollo 11, when it was actually filmed on the flights of Apollo 4 and Apollo 6. The command module also contained an automatic 70mm camera which captured photographs of almost the entire Earth. For a period of 2 hours and 13 minutes, as the craft approached and passed its apogee, a total of 755 color images were taken through the command pilot's left-hand forward-looking window at altitudes ranging from 7,295 to 9,769 nautical miles. The photographs were not of sufficient resolution to obtain detailed scientific data, but were still of geographic, cartographic, meteorologic, oceanographic, geologic, and hydrologic interest. The first stage burned out and separated, having consumed four and a half million pounds of fuel. The separation and second stage ignition 
were also recorded by cameras carried on board the vehicle, 40 miles above the Earth. The camera gave engineers a close-up look at another event, the separation of the interstage structure. This was critically important because clearances were extremely small between the structure and the engines. After Tube orbits, the S-4B's very first in-space reignition put the spacecraft into an elliptical orbit with an apogee of 9,297 nautical miles and a perigee deliberately aimed 45.7 nautical miles below the Earth's surface. This would ensure both a high-speed atmospheric re-entry of the command module and destruction after re-entry of the S-4B. Flight controllers had to prepare the third stage for its first reignition in space, a capability which must be proved for the Apollo lunar mission. One of the few irregularities of the entire flight occurred at this point, when data suggested that a valve on the Saturn V third stage had not closed as planned for the reignition. But technical skill paid off. The flight controllers quickly revised the pre-ignition sequence to compensate for the potential problem. The third stage was fired as scheduled, propelling Apollo 4 into its elliptical orbit. Five minutes and 25 seconds later, the stage shut down. Saturn V, whose guidance computer had made over 300 million calculations since liftoff, had placed the spacecraft on course. The third stage and a test model of the spacecraft lunar module fell away. The launch vehicle had done its job. A few moments later, the spacecraft's own propulsion system ignited and burned for 16 seconds, giving the spacecraft the velocity necessary to reach a peak altitude of more than 11,000 miles. The spacecraft was oriented so that its heat shield was shaded from the sun, soaking in a temperature 150 to 200 degrees below zero. The contrast between this cold temperature and the extremely high temperatures of re-entry would put the heat shield to an especially severe test. As Apollo 4 climbed, a camera pointing out the spacecraft window photographed part of what a future Apollo command pilot will see of our planet. These photographs were selected from a series shot every 11.4 seconds during a two-hour, 12-minute period as the Earth passed in front of the spacecraft window. Apollo 4 reached 11,232 miles above the Indian Ocean at 5 hours, 46 minutes, 48 seconds after liftoff and began its descent to Earth, responding to the pull of gravity, increasing in velocity as if it were speeding down a long hill. Some two hours, 20 minutes later, the spacecraft propulsion system again ignited, burning this time for four and a half minutes. This burn accelerated the spacecraft toward a re-entry into the atmosphere at 25,000 miles per hour, the speed anticipated for the re-entry of the Apollo lunar mission. The command module, which would contain the flight crew in a manned mission, was separated, then oriented with its heat shield forward. With the flight nearly completed, it was time for re-entry. At about 8 hours 40 minutes after liftoff, Apollo 4 re-entered the Earth's atmosphere. Temperatures on the heat shield, which was less than 3 inches thick, soon reached 5,000 degrees Fahrenheit. This was 1,000 degrees hotter than the launch pad flame bucket when Apollo 4 lifted off. Yet the temperature inside the command module never exceeded 70 degrees. 
Sailors on the USS Bennington, the prime recovery ship in the Pacific, watched the descending spacecraft with its parachutes in full bloom until it landed 16 kilometers away about nine hours after its launch from Florida. Swimmers jumped from the helicopters to assist in the recovery of Spacecraft 17, which took about two hours. Command module landed approximately 8.6 nautical miles from the target landing site northwest of Midway Island in the North Pacific Ocean. The command module splashed into the Pacific Ocean within sight of its recovery ship, the USS Bennington. Although charred, the five-and-a-half-ton command module, like the entire 3,000-ton Apollo Saturn V, had passed the test. Further, the chain of ground facilities and the launch and flight teams had shown themselves equal to the task. Some eight-and-a-half hours after Apollo 4 roared off the launch pad at the Kennedy Space Center, the mission ended. The road to the moon is a long and difficult one, and the flight of Apollo 4 is a successful beginning. Technically, managerially, and psychologically, Apollo 4 was an important successful mission, especially in view of the number of firsts it tackled. It was the first flight of the first and second stages of the Saturn V. Recall the S-4B stage had flown on the Saturn 1B launch vehicles. It was the first launch of a complete Saturn V, the first restart of the S-4B in orbital flight, the first liftoff from Launch Complex 39, the first flight test of the Block 2 Command Module Heat Shield, the first flight of even a simulated lunar module, and it demonstrated NASA Associate Administrator George Miller's fearless all-up concept. The fact that everything worked so well and with so little trouble gave NASA a confident feeling. As Apollo Program Director General Samuel Phillips phrased it, quote, Apollo was on the way to the moon. for listening to this archive episode of the Space Rocket History Podcast. If you are financially able, please support the podcast by going to the homepage spacerockethistory.com and clicking on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Thanks.